1: From Davos, we also heard Bob Prince, co-CIO of Bridgewater, saying that we are seeing the end of the boom and bust cycle, which is particularly relevant for our next guest, uh, or our guests, I should say, plural, who uh, have been sort of honing in on this concept of a Minsky moment. And I'm really glad to say we have John Authors with us, senior editor for Bloomberg Markets, uh, as well as a special guest, Bob, uh, Bob Barbera, who wrote a book on the Minsky moment that a lot of people talk about and are uh, waiting for. It is also a professor at Johns Hopkins. So I'm wondering, John, just can you give us a sense of why you wanted to take a closer look at the concept of a Minsky moment right now?
2: Well, uh, I did decide this before somebody in in control of a very large amount of money declared that the boom bust cycle was over, which would appear to be one of the classic moments that Minsky would worry about but even a month or so ago when we started on the Bloomberg Book Club saying read Minsky and read Bob's uh, book on Minsky there was obvious concern the key notion of Hyman Minsky that we were trying to get at is that stability breeds instability, that when people are calm and relaxed and confident, they will inevitably take things too far, and that will lead to overexpansion of credit, a Ponzi cycle, and then the Minsky moment is when the coyote looks down, to mix my metaphors, and realize uh, that, there is, that, that there is nothing to support that debt.
0: Dr. Barbera, do you believe we are at a Minsky moment currently?
3: Well, I like to say that the difference between me and Ray Dalio is that he had the timing precisely right and therefore he has 50 billion and I don't. <laughs> right. So I can't tell you, I know we're at a Minsky moment right now, but I can tell you that we we have the preconditions falling into place, and, and certainly on the debt side. I mean, just think about the fact that junk bonds yielded 16% in 2009. In other words, no one was willing to, li- to lend to a risky company, and now you're seeing them at less than 5%. So there's no margin for error there. Now, if a company uh, is offered an extra, an extremely easy uh, credit term, they're going to borrow more, and that's what we're seeing right now.
1: Well, although you could argue, uh, people have been trying to make this bet for a long time since the crisis. Everyone's been worried that we're s- sowing the seeds for the next crisis. But there's the Federal Reserve and the ECB and the BOJ sticking their thumb on the scales here. To Bob Prince's point, you know, a lot of people are saying he's crazy. This sort of heralds the next Minsky moment. Other people saying he's right. The idea that the central banks are coming in and suppressing volatility, suppressing yields, changes the equations fundamentally.
3: Okay, so um, I think that if you if you if we were to watch what the Fed is doing, let's pick one central bank, the one we watch most of the time. What they're saying is uh, the inflation backdrop is quiescent. And as a consequence, they'd have to see a meaningful change in inflation before they would uh, begin to tighten credit. All right, that's been the movie. The movie has been you watch the wrong arena. So you're watching a sideshow, the price of corn, and what UAW wages are doing, and you're ignoring the main event which is what's going on in asset markets. So you're at, staring at the price of corn. The asset markets, because you've said, I'm not gonna do anything, get progressively riskier. At some point, you get a modest, unimportant rise for inflation, but you dutifully respond to it, and you let everybody know it's a small inflation, it'll be easy to take care of, But what happens, you bust the bubble and then you discover that the cost of that modest tightening is much larger than you anticipated. So in 1990 Greenspan talks about secular headwinds in 2000, Bernanke says we need helicopter money and you're watching the wrong movie. And it's not that they have ended the, the cycle, it's that they're not looking at what matters. Hey, John,
2: tell us about Hmm. the uh, upcoming book club live chat you have. So this is a part of our our ongoing book club with the screamingly uh, clever clever name of author's notes. Authors with an E. I get it. Yeah, good. And (laughs) uh, we'll be live blogging on the uh, terminal. So anybody on the who has access to a terminal who wants a multimedia Bloomberg experience this morning, can keep listening to radio while following our live blog on Live T-L-I-V Go, on the terminal starting at 11, carrying on yeah. till 12.30. If you have any questions for me or particularly Bob Barbera, email them to authorsnotes.com authors with an e-notes at Bloomberg.net. <laughs> John Authors,
0: thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it, John Authors, senior editor of Bloomberg uh, Markets and uh, Dr. Barbera from Johns Hopkins. Who is
1: the author of The Cost of Capitalism, Understanding Market Mayhem and Stabilizing Our Economic Future. <laughs> Have we had a exactly. stabilization or are we facing are we to Minsky another Minsky moment? moment. Right, exactly. One of the top stories that really caught my attention was the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, antitrust officials, are looking into the top index fund providers that have seen incredible inflows and surge to to sort of record power and scope. BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street in particular, and one kind of statistic that caught my eye here is that the big three, which is what they're called, collectively own about 22% of the typical S&P 500 company, which could potentially give them significant influence over major decisions like mergers. That is the theory. And chomping at the bit to what? weigh in Wait, here. What? Is what? Barry Ritholtz? I have to even introduce you. What? Yeah, come on, Wait. Barry Ritholtz, who is founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, who has, has opinions. Yeah, opinion. <laughs> he he's got he's got some strong opinions. So Wait, let's hear it. I,
4: I, I'm confused. Uh,
1: you want me to break it down? Slower? Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so, 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 what?
4: You you understand how passive indexes work, right? A third party index provider, like let's say the S and P, creates this index. And you passively own it.
1: Well, no, but hold on one second. The theory here is a BlackRock, particularly BlackRock, where Uh you've had Larry Fink come out and say, we are such a huge owner of stocks. We are going to have a more activist approach. In our shareholder, okay, he's he's right. making hand motions right. that I wish he, we he could, could represent. He could write uh, whatever he wants in his audience. annual letters, and he
4: could send those letters out to whoever he wants, and he yeah. could go on TV and he could talk about it. Yeah. But at the end of the day, Larry Rock—that's La, La, <laughs> what the Fink? president calls him. No, Larry Blackrock, like uh, Tin Apple. Okay. <laughs> uh, Larry Fink of BlackRock is going to own funds that own indexes, and if he doesn't like the companies that are in those indexes. Well, it's too bad. That's how he got to be a $7 trillion company. He is not going to advise companies about their mergers and acquisitions. He's not going to advise them about their strategy. He could write a very lovely annual letter saying, hey, we should all be green and we should be concerned about the future, blah, blah, blah. And then he's going to go back to his office and he's going to count the $7 trillion in passive indexes he has and do nothing else. And we could see this, in how these companies vote their proxies, in what they actually do. All three of these companies are 22% on average of um, U.S. companies. That means 78% of those holdings are other owners who actually vote their proxies, who elect the board of directors of these companies.
0: And they don't really care what Larry Fink thinks about the companies in their indexes. So if I'm Company A thinking about buying Company B, and Company B is has a terrible ESG score and is a polluter or whatever, and I know Larry Fink's index, BlackRock owns you know X percent of this company, is the biggest shareholder of this company. I don't care.
4: Well, actually, Larry Fink, you, you almost got there. It's not okay. quite Larry Fink. <laughs> what we know about ESG indexes is on average they've been outperforming the broader indexes. And we also know that ESG as a screen is a fantastic risk management tool. Okay. When it turns out that you have a diverse board of directors and you have fairly right. gender parity in pay, you're much less likely cool. to get hit with the sort of compliance problems and we,
1: me too okay. problems that have afflicted other companies. But let's get back to the real core of this issue here, mm-hmm. which is what kinds of power do the big index providers have with the companies that they own shares in, given the fact that they are owned in passive companies, in, in passive indexes, and they really are not able to sell the shares if they want That's to right. in order to so protest. That
4: is the power is to it. sell. Okay. Right. Active managers have the power because they say, you know what? I've had it with you, Jack Dorsey. You're not running Twitter. Right. Look at Professor Scott Galloway, owns ten million shares of Twitter, and said the guy is a part time CEO. He's also the CEO of Square. He's going to Africa right. for three months. I I'm gonna I'm gonna sell my shares.
1: But then there's a question sort of embedded in this is the only check and balance that a shareholder has the sell option? No. Or are there other you options vote. you can vote? Yeah. And and BlackRock has a lot of votes. Yeah, but they don't really use them. But true? they could. Why? What, what's 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 keeping them from using them?
4: Because they operate on behalf of it, their clients, the investors, and if they want to diverge their activity and their belief system from the trust that investors have put with with them, so hypothetically, there are three companies. Let's say one of these companies decides to become much more activist as a passive investor. I know that it's a little bit <laughs> of a contradiction in terms. The other two companies are gonna then start advertising, hey, listen, we're here to invest your money. We're not trying to change the world. We're not trying to run a political campaign. Trust us to manage your money appropriately. Who wants to take that risk with six or $7 trillion in client assets? So the the whole argument, let's step back and look at where this argument came from. So as passive has ridden from a relatively insignificant part of mutual funds and ETFs to now over half. Now, admittedly, mutual funds is still a small part of the total world of investing, but 50% of that, call it 20% of the world is passive. As that's taken place, as that's risen, the active world has responded aggressively. We saw uh, research papers that said It's it's Marxist. It's un-American. It's going to crash the market. It's going to destroy the economy. Every harebrained argument against passive investing, very efficient, very low cost, very unemotional, has been mustered. This. Oh, my goodness. The the big indexers are now, you know, they're going to they might theoretically in some alternative universe collaborate to stop. Um, stop competition is the latest stupidity rollout. And by the way, the underlying academic research is based on looking at airline stocks and banking stocks, two areas that have been wildly aberrational compared to the rest of the market. Yes, of course, we've, we've seen total deregulation in the airline industry. Of course, that looks different than the rest of the world. And banks, in case you haven't noticed, received a giant bailout over a decade ago. So when we look at these things, those are not the right sectors. If there's really coordination amongst the big companies, show me how that's impacting competition in the tech space where there are a lot of monopolies. It turns
1: out it's not
0: happening. Barry Reholtz, thank you so much. Barry Ritholtz, guess, guess what, people? He is a Bloomberg opinion he columnist. Has
1: <laughs> he yeah. has a columnist. I wonder what his opinion was on this issue. It really seemed a little bit opaque to me.
0: Exactly. right. He's a host of uh, Masters in Business it's on Bloomberg weird. Radio. A great podcast. Also founder, chairman, and chief investment officer of Ritholtz uh, Wealth Management. We love having Barry here talking about uh, all things financial markets. Our next guest really has a unique view on the market. Michael Sonnenfeld, chairman and founder of Tiger 21. Tiger 21 is a peer membership organization for high net worth uh, investors. Tiger 21 has 770 members with more than $77 billion in assets. So really a unique view on the market. Michael, thanks so much for joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Right now, after the move we had in the market in 2019, what are your members saying about the market? Are they running out on that risk curve? Or are they saying, gee, maybe I'm going to pull it in a little bit?
5: So uh, I think sentiment is shifting. People who weren't concerned a year ago are a little more concerned today. People who were concerned are even more so. Uh, But our members are looking for an all-weather portfolio. And The way they do that is sort of barbell. They have risk assets in public, private equity, and real estate, and then they have large reserves of cash at about 12%, so they're not forced to liquidate if there's a market downturn, the very best assets they want to hold on to.
1: Ray Dalio said cash is trash. What's the argument for holding it?
5: So the argument for holding it is if you're an entrepreneur, our members have built great businesses and they've done it sort of step by step by rolling up their shirt sleeves you wanna have cash to pounce on an opportunity. If you're a pure investor like Ray, he has different ways of looking at a fully invested portfolio, but for our members who are individuals, they wanna make sure that if there's a tremendous downturn They can live through it, so they have 12% in cash, which is about six years living expenses. By historic standards, our members live on about 2% of their assets, and more importantly, they don't wanna be forced to liquidate assets at just the wrong time at low prices. They wanna be able to weather through any potential storm.
0: Michael, I know many of your members, and you as well, have a background in real estate. How are they looking at real estate
5: right now? Sure, so real estate is king. It's the number one asset within in our members' portfolio, about 29%. Uh, I think they look at it as the great anchor. It's the income producing, the reoccurring uh, income that comes from real estate that a lot of our members count on. Uh, They've taken some chips off the table a year or two ago. It was in the mid-30s, so they've taken low-hanging fruit. And you have such transformation in real estate, uh, particularly in the United States, you have the gateway 24-7 cities, which are very strong, but even there's some weakness there in the upper end here in New York. And then you get out of those gateway cities where technology companies are thriving and there's growth, and you have a, a heap of heartache out there. So it's not just one size fits all, but that's where our members' expertise is, and that's where they want to continue investing.
1: When we talk about private equity, you said that, that was one area that they have been increasing uh, allocations to. There's been record amounts of money raised, record amounts of dry powder, to put to work valuations near or at record highs how concerned are the members that they're perhaps getting in at a top even though this has been an asset class that has been delivering outsized returns
5: So, our members are entrepreneurs who have built businesses from scratch and so they tend to want to look at private equity as a direct shareholder in a small company that's growing. They understand that there's lots of cash, but they're playing into that trend by growing very small businesses into large. They're not putting huge amounts of money in the big mega funds they've had their day, our members are helping to create the businesses that are gonna take advantage of that cash that you're talking about. So in order to be a seller into a seller's market, you have to create companies that are the stuff of legends. And that's why at the other end of the spectrum, they're staying away from the IPOs. Those were overpriced last year, whether people got greedy or whatever it was, most of the IPOs traded down. So our members have shifted from looking at IPO opportunities Uh, to venture capital and private equity opportunities. How concerned are your members about, you know, some of
0: the geopolitical risk, whether it's impeachment or whether it's trade issues? Do they try to take a longer
5: term view and and not let that noise get in the way? So um, for the long term, our members are risk on. They have 70 plus percent in public equity, private equity and real estate. So they have a long term bet on the economy that is uh, almost, uh, doesn't look at the short term, if you will. But because they know that unexpected things are what trash markets, you're going to come in one day and the market's going to be dramatically down. That's why they're carrying large amounts of Uh, Cash they want to have that balance when you sell a business you have to come together with a strategy and when you meet every month With people who have been doing this in particular people who lived through the 2008 Crisis and said what worked when you can learn from your peers in a confidential setting You can get an edge and figure out where your place is in that uh
1: In in that ecosystem. Just real quick here, I'm wondering whether you have a sense of the appropriate returns to expect in an all-weather portfolio
5: through the cycle. So last uh, year, I'd say most of our members were in the high single digits and low double digits, and many of them watched the markets up 28 or 29%. But they had much higher returns than the market over their career. Last year was an anomaly. So we'd like to be long-term greedy, not short-term greedy. We'd like to be able to weather through the storms. I think if you could get on a passive portfolio anything in the high single digits uh, over the long term, that would be pretty great.
1: Michael Sonnenfeld, thank you so much for being with us. Michael Sonnenfeld, chairman and founder of Tiger 21, uh, with members who have the Very assets cool. of $77 yeah. billion. Dollars. Yeah. Really really interesting to hear uh, how they're thinking, what it means to be cautious right now.
0: And the number I took away, oh, living on 2% of their assets. So yeah. have to go back in and-
1: Well, 12% being in cash. Yeah. Uh, so much for cash is trash. California's biggest utility is finally working through or getting closer to working through uh, some of its liabilities after wildfires put it on the hook for billions of dollars, throwing it into bankruptcy from having been an investment-grade rated company. Joining us now is Phil Brendel, senior credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us from Skillman, New Jersey, and I'm wondering where we are. If you could just bring us up to speed in the whole court process and uh, the sort of resurrection of PG&E to a solvent company, Utility, one more time.
6: Hi, Lisa. Thanks a lot. Yeah, no. So Pacific Gas and Electric announced uh, through an AK that uh, they've reached a deal with uh, note holders, and that's about $22 billion of uh, notes. And uh, what they're going to get back is some, some bonds will be reinstated. Some will get a mix of longer dated notes and shorter Dated notes, but the bottom line is, is this is a tremendously uh, successful, uh, you know, progress uh, for for the company. Uh, you, you know, first they cut a deal with the tour claimants, the insurers, uh, the shareholders are getting something here. So, uh, you know, we're seeing all the pieces come together. Uh, for a deal.
0: So, uh, Phil, we understand, however, that Governor uh, Gavin Newsom of California is not supportive of the deal. What's the status of that and what needs to happen?
6: Right. So, for a while there, it it was the uh, company and the uh, and the shareholders on one side, you had the governor on another side, and then you had a three-way standoff uh, with the note holders. Uh, and you know, one of our thesis was that if two of those parties get together, the, other, the third's in trouble. And, and I think that's what we're seeing now. By and large, the governor's moment to impact the plan in bankruptcy court has passed. They arguably could have been more forceful when the tour claimants and subrogation claimants. Uh, They had a restructuring support agreement that was up for court approval, but they chose to be fairly silent. So uh, it might be a little bit late in the game to impact things in the bankruptcy court, but uh, there is the... the the trump card that they hold is uh, the CPUC needs to approve this plan. And so they'll have an impact there, obviously, that's the Public Utility Commission.
1: Can we just take a step back for a second? I sure. remember when the wildfires uh, first were in the news and when PCNG uh, ended up filing for bankruptcy in short order because of these liabilities, there was a larger discussion about what California should do with its utilities, who should be on the hook for this, you know, whether or not this was mismanagement or just a, an increasing issue uh, that was going to occur. And I'm wondering, has there been any broader conversation on that front?
6: Right. So, and it's all about who, who who made money here, who lost money. And I, I think w- w- the winners and losers, I think the shareholders obviously were big losers, but at the end of the day, they're probably going to walk away with 20 to 35% of uh, the reorganized company on behalf of their old stock. They are also going to be on the hook to put in $12 billion more here. So they, they, they there definitely has been, you know, I think most of their pain was, Taken up front, uh, and 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 that twelve billion dollar equity investment. So. The, the, there's they really uh, you know the, I, I think that's where the bulk of the losses were suffered um, as far as uh, the bondholders the bondholders are coming away uh, pretty nicely here they're getting a full recovery and on top of that the, the terms of that debt look to be pretty attractive given where the market is right now so uh, I, I, to, to some extent the helpful credit markets right now are providing uh, is Providing value to some of the stakeholders here that otherwise wouldn't be there in a, in a different market, so yeah. at this point now with the with the holders signing up and saying, yeah we'll take these notes back at four point nine five percent for thirty years
3: yeah.
6: uh, they're effectively taking the market risk from this point forward, and so you know if the markets did go against them, uh, the state wouldn't and the state and e have that deal already. Yeah, nailed down.
1: Phil Brendel, thank you so much for being with us. Phil Brendel, senior credit analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us from Skillman, New Jersey. Uh, you know, bigger issue, especially for people like yourself with homes yes. in California. <laughs> right. uh, you're really waiting to figure out what the uh, longer-term ramifications yeah, will be. Yeah, because I this. mean, the,
0: the, these fires aren't going away. So it's how do you year after year, season after season, deal with it?